Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up, and let's get started on today's podcast. Welcome back to the Leanne Ward Nutrition Podcast for episode number 55. Back on the podcast this week, we have gut health expert, Dr. Will Bullswick, or Dr. B, as many of you know him by. If you haven't checked out his earlier episodes on my podcast, please go back and listen to episodes 9 and 13 with Dr. B, who is a double board certified gastroenterologist and a doctor of internal medicine with 14 years as an MD, helping his patients reverse symptoms of IBS, leaky gut and other digestive and gut health issues. Now, Dr. B is all about stopping problems before they start. So in part one of this part two chat, we start by discussing why gut health is so important and new research in the areas of gut health and weight loss, mental health and time-restricted eating. We then discuss autoimmune conditions and inflammation, leaky gut, low residue diets and structuring, probiotics and prebiotics, and finally, the signs to look out for if you have an unhealthy gut. If you have any questions about gut health, be sure to tune into this podcast for the latest cutting-edge medical research on all things gut health. To get in touch with Dr. B, follow him on Instagram. He's at the Gut Health MD. His website is theplantfedgut.com. And his new book, which I'm so excited to tell you guys all about, is Fiber Fueled. It is due out this week on May the 12th, and you can find it at theplantfedgut.com slash book. I hope you guys enjoy this podcast and please share it to your Instagram or Facebook stories and tag us so we can share it too. Welcome back to the podcast, Dr. B. We're very excited to have you on. Um, thank you for for gracing us with your presence and your knowledge. Oh my gosh. Thank you for allowing me to come and hang out with you again. Honestly, it's a great pleasure. It's um, always an honor to connect and I love the, the um, you know, tribe of people that follow We and Word Nutrition. So you know, it's always been fun connecting with you guys too at home. Yeah, thank you so much. That's um, I always have so many questions every time I chat to you, and I feel a little bit selfish because I'm like sometimes the things that I ask you, I'm like purely from my own knowledge, but I'm sure that so many of our listeners benefit from it as well. Yeah. So I'm very, very excited to have you back on. And guys, if you haven't heard Dr. B's other podcasts, we did do some very early on. So check out the show notes, and we'll definitely link those ones as well. Um, everything is still very, very relevant, even though we recorded it um probably a year ago. But we'll give you a quick update in this podcast and touch on a few more gut health issues, which I'm sure you guys are burning to hear about. It feels like a so long ago, right? It's like crazy. It and, does. And it feels well, like it so much is. has changed, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. and we're in the era of COVID-19 and it's just like yes. a, a week right now feels like two months. It does, doesn't it? You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's just amazing how much is packed into everything that's happening right now and the information mm. and the I mean, just, and honestly, the emotional roller coaster. How are you, how are you doing yeah. with all of this? Yeah, no, I'm doing okay. And I think uh, I'm fortunate, as we were saying before, the start of the podcast to sort of have a business that has been running online before all this. And so I think I'm just trying to use, I guess, what you might call my influence to, to remind people that, you know, it, um, 
doing everything perfectly with their health doesn't, you know, it's not a huge priority at the moment. If they don't hit the gym every day because the gyms are closed, if they're not able to exercise because they've been homeschooling their kids all day, you know, because a lot of the schools are closed here in Australia, which I'm sure they are in America as well. So just reminding people like your priorities can shift and change, but health and nutrition can still be important. But what mattered three months ago might be very different to what matters now. You know, you might've been super great with your meal prep and you're eating, um, you know, really great whole foods, but then there's just no whole foods left at the supermarket or you can't even get Get to the supermarket in some places. So it's really just knowing that there are some things that are still within your control and other things you just have to be a little bit more flexible around, isn't it? Yeah, that's a great point. And I, and I feel like too, it's a good time to discover some new talents, like yeah. maybe pick out something that you've always wanted to do and give it a try. Yeah. And, you know, perhaps that's something related to nutrition. Maybe, maybe it's reading my book, Fiber Fueled. Yep. Maybe it is getting in the kitchen and learning how to cook. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe it's something completely unrelated. Like for example, you know, if I had the time right now, so I have, I have little kids and I'm still working hard because I'm watching this book, mm-hmm. but if I had the time right now, I would love to learn guitar. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I just think it'd be so fun. Yeah. One of my things is, and again, completely unrelated, so random is to just learn to handstand. (laughs) It's always something I've wanted to do. And I've practiced in the past and I've got to the point where I can like nearly get up and nearly hold it, but I've never quite gotten there. And I've never just kept practicing that skill, you know? So yeah. (laughs) And doing it without support, you mean? Like not not even against the wall? Yeah. I mean, that would be the dream, but I've never really got close to that, but I've gotten onto the wall and been able to push off the wall and hold it off the wall. But just where I'm living at the moment isn't, isn't really conducive to that. But again, in my head, I'm like, you're just making excuses. Like where there's a will, there's a way. And I know that I can find, you know, go to the local park or something like that, or just use like the outside of, of our place or something like that. So I know that I'm just making excuses, but yeah, for everyone at home, maybe pick a goal that is related to your health. And then something that's entirely not as Dr. V said, and learn a new skill, a new language or something like that. I've always lo- I've always wanted to learn French. I think that would be amazing. <laughs> so let's do that. Everyone, let's all commit. Let's all commit to doing one new skill. And we're going to hold Leanne accountable for this, which basically <laughs> means that when September comes, Leanne, we expect to see an Instagram post with a handstand. We're expecting this. Okay. I think handstand's probably easier than learning French right now. So you're on. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> All right, Dr. V, let's start by doing a little bit of a recap on why gut health is so important for our listeners. At home, if they're like, oh, I'm healthy, I don't need to look, I don't need to, you know, look after my gut health, I'm fine. Why is it so important for everybody, for those who might be um, you know, medically unwell, right through to those people who are quite fit and healthy? Gosh, I I honestly so it's amazing how this has changed because I have always felt that gut health is important. Mm. You know, I, I honestly believe that gut health, as you alluded to, Leanne. I think it's relevant for everyone. Mm -hmm. You can be in complete health and guess what? You want to protect that health, right? You don't want to wake up one day with some chronic issue that you can't just undo. Mm. And so you want to protect that, that, that health that you have. But if you're not doing well, if you have some sort of medical issue that you're trying to fix, let's also recognize how connected gut health is to so many different parts of the body. And we can talk about this, but really what's changed for me is that in in comes the era of COVID-19. And I honestly think gut health is even more relevant today than it was a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. And a big part of the reason why is the connection to the immune system. Mm-hmm. 70% of the immune system lives in the gut. That's just one of the examples of how important the gut is. The immune system, your metabolism, your hormonal balance, mm-hmm. your mood, the, your cognition, your focus, and even, you know, perhaps the most difficult to understand, but the most powerful is that it can change your genetics. 
like the way that you express your genes can be affected by your gut health. And if you think about that, like we thought we were just a big, you know, genetic code, like we were just a big genetic code that would tell what our future is and what our health problems would be. And the reality is that's not true. Your gut health can affect your genetic code and alter the expression. And that is so powerful. It's like insane. Yeah. Crazy, isn't it? They're like, there's so many things we could record for hours and hours and hours and hours, couldn't we? Well, especially because I'm a nerd. And so <laughs> if you start throwing these questions my way, I'm just going to kind of nerd out. And so, yes, we could record for hours and you would have to cut me off. And that's because I'm a nerd. And equally, I'm such a nerd about gut health as well. There's so many things that I want to learn, but let's try to bring it back to basics, I guess, for chatting to our listeners about just general, generally what, you know, the majority of people suffer with, but just as a bit of a statistic to start with, and you'll probably just know the American, but what sort of percentage of the population does suffer from some sort of gut health problem, disease, condition, symptom? Because I'm sure I've read somewhere in Australia, it's something like, you know, up to 20% of people suffer from IBS. 20% of people suffer from IBS in the United States too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there's a a huge overlap. Yeah. It is. And you know, it really depends on what you want to classify as suffering with a a GI related or digestive related issue, right? Because- you might say, oh, well, is it bad enough to send you to the doctor? But how many people suffer from acid reflux? Mm. I mean, a ton. Like how many people have the occasional gas and bloating after Mm. they eat and they don't necessarily go to their doctor, but they feel unwell and they don't like the way that they feel. Mm -hmm. And I feel like almost all of us. So yes, statistically anywhere from 20 to 50% is is the number that many would cite in terms of suffering with a gut health issue. But I, I feel like all of us at some point in our life have these types of things that pop up. And so I think it's relevant to every single one of us, you know, and in, in our own way, we own, we all have our own sort of gut health story that's mm. unfolding. Um, and we want that story to have a happy ending, of course. So. Yes. Amazing. Definitely agree. And, I, and as you said, there's so many people who um, may suffer from gut health, but then not even know that there was something that they could do about that, you know? Yeah, I feel like I feel like many people they um, they think that they just have to live this way. I even get this from my patients sometimes. I don't know. Do you get this ever from your clients that you work with? Yeah, yeah. That they just think that they think that like, well, doc, am I just going to have to live with this? Yeah. Well, I get. Oh, I thought that was normal. Like, I went to my GP for something completely different, and they asked me about this, and now I'm here seeing you, and I just thought that my bowels opened eight times a day, and that was normal. And I'm like, no. <laughs> That is such a good point, actually. I'd be curious to know if there's anyone listening at home right now who's had this experience where they thought something was normal. And then the first time that you like move in with someone else, you realize that, oh my gosh, like they poop once a day and I'm pooping, you know, once every five days or I'm pooping eight times a day. Yeah. You know, and I I have quite a few patients who tell me things like that. And so, yeah, it's it's a great point, Leanne. And so the, the the point being, though, I mean, I think it's fair to say that we have widely prevalent digestive issues mm. in the industrial world. You know, whether it's Australia, the U.S., Europe, whatever it may be, um, there is there you know there is no lack of business for me as a gastroenterologist. I'm not worried that I'm going to heal so many people that I lose the ability to take care of them as a doctor. So yeah, all your clients will, will dry up because sadly there are so many people out there that are suffering from, from gut health complaints and diseases, aren't there? Yeah. And it seems like it's getting worse, honestly. Yeah. I mean, I think you've got the research and the studies to prove that it is getting worse over time, isn't it? Well, there's so many different ones that you could look at, right? So it depends on, it depends on what you want to define. But for example, if you look at celiac disease, yeah. 500% increase in the last 40 years, Massive. you know, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, like 
some of these are quite interesting. Um, you know, for example, take a third world country and look inside the country at what happens as they industrialize. Mm. And then they basically turn their economy into a first world economy. So go to a place like Brazil and take a look at what's happening within their, their country. And what you'll find is that from the early 90s, moving forward, they were seeing an increase of Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, which of course are, are, are those are digestive issues. They're also autoimmune issues. Mm. They saw a, a rise of Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis between 10 to 15% increase every single year, every wow. single year. And, you know, it got to the point where the doctors that were in this country, in, in, in Brazil, didn't know how to take care of these new patients that had these problems. And so they had to fly to other places. Like many times they would come to the United States and they would attend our conferences, just mm. trying to learn, like, teach me the basics. How do I do this? Because I've never seen this before. And now I'm seeing it all the time. I mean, it's, it's, it's in, insane to kind of think about how quickly something like that could emerge. And then you mm. start to ask the question, well, why? Why is that emerging? And I think that the answer comes back to the microbiome. Yeah, which is heavily influenced by the gut. Sorry, your your nutrition. <laughs> it's heavily influenced by your nutrition. It's yeah. heavily influenced by your lifestyle. Yeah. Um, you know, just for a moment, consider what life was like for your great-grandparents, mm. you know, a little over 100 years ago. They didn't eat the same food that we eat. They didn't have a car to drive them everywhere they go. Mm-hmm. They didn't have television. Um, they spent a lot more time outside. Mm-hmm. Food supply wasn't quite as easy. Mm-hmm. There were no restaurants. There really weren't many processed foods. Yeah. And think of how quickly we've been like forcing this on our, you know, sort of biology, forcing this on on ourselves and on our gut microbiome. These radical changes that we've made in the last 100 years. I mean, it's it's. It's no surprise that it is having adverse effects, and yeah. and then and then when you when you damage the gut, disease starts to show up, and that's what we see. Now you mentioned some different clinical conditions such as um, celiac disease and um, inflammatory bowel diseases, such as Crohn's. What about um, just more generally the areas of gut health and weight loss? Has there been any sort of new research or new studies in the last year or two around how your gut health may influence um, weight gain or weight loss? Well, I, I tend to think of it, and I don't know that our opinion on weight loss with regard to gut health has, has dramatically shifted in the last year or two. Mm. I think if anything, what we've done is we've we've really galvanized what we were already tending to believe, which is that your gut health matters when yeah. it comes to your your metabolism and in terms of your weight balance. And so I tend to think of it like this. It's like a current. It's like a current when you're trying to swim, mm-hmm. Okay. Think of the person who can literally eat whatever they want and they get away with it. Yeah. And I I used to think that I was that person. Like when I was really young, I thought I was that person. I thought I could eat whatever I want and I would get away with it. This this person is swimming with the current behind them. The current is pushing them forward. Mm -hmm. And they just think that they're untouchable because they're swimming so fast because the current is pushing them, making them look like a superstar. Yeah, they're not doing any work. They're not doing any work. (laughs) And then we, we see these other people, and I know that you have some of these people as your clients, who they fight. Like they fight. They are trying. It is not a matter of willpower. They are trying so hard to try to lose five pounds. 
and they're mm-hmm. struggling. And that person to me, in my mind, I view it as they're swimming against the current, the current's pushing against them mm-hmm. and they're chopping with their arms and they're exhausting themselves and they're really not moving at all. Mm-hmm. And so that's the way that I sort of simplify it. But we have these studies that just kind of show us how powerful this is. And to share one that's in the book, Fiber Fueled, to share one of them, let me give you an example. They did this study where they took identical human twins. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the genetics are the same. And, but in these identical human twins, they found pairs where one was overweight and the other was thin. And they transferred stool from these humans into mice. Mm-hmm. All right, and what they found is that when they fed two mice, one mouse had gotten the obese person's stool, the other mouse had gotten the skinny person's stool. When they fed these mice literally the exact same food, exact same calories, no difference at all, the mouse that got the obese person's stool became obese. Mm-hmm. The, the other mouse that got the skinny person's stool became skinny, yet they were feeding them the exact same food and they were eating the same number of calories. It is not just calories in and calories out. Mm. There is no doubt, like, I, I'm sure you would agree with me that when people go into a calorie deficit, they will lose some weight. Yeah, 100%. There's no Initially. Yeah. 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 Initially. And, but is it that simple? No. It's not. Because when you do that, then your, your metabolism starts to adjust to what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And so you, it's not just calories in and calories out. It's far more complicated than that. There's a reason why obesity is such a complex problem mm. and that we struggle with this problem so hard. But I really think that one of the solutions is the gut microbiome. I really, truly do. Mm. And when we think about it, it all comes back to lifestyle factors. You know, so many people go, I'm going to go on a diet. I'm going to cut out X, Y, Z. And that's all that they think about. They they forget how much stress and sleep and that sort of thing influence their lifestyle as well. And as a super quick example for the listeners at home, if you're not getting enough sleep, your different types of hormones that affect your hunger and your fullness or your satiety, they're influenced as well. So if you're not getting enough sleep, you're always going to feel hungrier and never feel as satisfied after meals. And that has nothing to do with... um what you might actually be physically putting in your mouth or what you might be tracking on MyFitnessPal. So it's not just about exactly what we eat as well, is it? It it encompasses everything. But then when we talk about sleep and stress, that's influenced by our gut microbiome as well. There's a feedback loop that exists. Mm. And so it's so interesting to hear you describe it like that because I'm hearing in my mind, I'm thinking about myself when I was a medical resident. Mm. So I was in my training and I was doing like 30 hour shifts in the ICU. And I would leave that shift, okay? And I would be completely, completely exhausted. I mean, like literally it was probably unsafe for me to drive home. It was like a drunk person driving, drive home. I would stop at a fast food Mexican joint. Mm -hmm. All right. And I would spend like $25 and just binge and then pass out. Now, what's interesting is you're talking about some of the satiety hormones. Mm. And if you zoom in on the gut microbiome in a person who is sleep deprived, what you'll find is that their gut microbiome starts to shift to resemble a person who has obesity. And so it kind of comes full circle because now you have a gut microbiome where you are not easily satisfied, where you are craving these unhealthy foods like simple carbohydrates. Yeah. And also the gut microbiome is now designed to extract more calories out of the food that you eat. Yeah. And so, and everything that you just described in combination with the changes to the gut microbiome, all of a sudden it starts to make so much sense that sleep deprivation, or even our shift workers, like our nurses and our police officers and our firefighters, 
or being jet lagged. All of these things affect the gut and therefore have physiologic effects downstream. Yeah, 100%. And that's why I think it's so important for people to think about health as a lifestyle, not just about nutrition, not just about what you put in your mouth. You could eat, and I absolutely hate this word, but you know, super clean, because I only use it because people understand what it means at home when they're listening. But you could have you know, the cleanest diet in the whole world, but still be very unhealthy. If you're constantly stressed, you're not getting enough sleep, um, and you're just not um, putting enough you know, actual nutrients into your body, despite hitting your calories and your macro goals every day. People forget about the micronutrients that they're eating as well. So there's so many different things that encompass what we would term good health. But I think it's so relevant to have you on this podcast, Dr. B, because everything really does start and kind of end with our gut health, doesn't it? As you said, it kind of goes full circle. (laughs) It goes full circle and it it really uh, starts to show you how much our environment has an effect on our health because it affects our gut. Mm. And, And what you just said is quite fascinating because we are talking about the importance of nutrition for gut health. Many people who have a damaged gut will struggle to eat the healthy foods that I believe are best for their gut. Yeah. You know, I'm talking about like, you know, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, and nuts. Mm. Many people who have a damaged gut will struggle with those foods. But can I tell you how to heal your gut in a way that you will not struggle? Mm. Do the things that you just described, Leanne. Yeah. There's ways that you can heal your gut without lifting a fork. Yeah. Yeah. And that means taking, that means actually getting a good night's rest, going to bed early, mm-hmm. getting your eight plus hours of sleep, yeah. getting in some good exercise throughout the week, spending time outdoors, um, socializing, mm-hmm. de-stressing, like having some sort of way that you get the stress out. All of these things are ways to strengthen and fortify your gut without even having to lift a fork. Isn't it crazy? And we put so much stress and overemphasis on our nutrition. And I see so many people that are so stressed out of their eyeballs, even doing, um, you know, things that they might have Googled online or something like following a low FODMAP diet because they've got a bit of bloating. And it's like, if you just did one or two, three simple things, again, without lifting a fork, you could potentially have incredible impacts on that bloating um, without even having to go down a super restrictive diet, which makes people more stressed, which then can compound the symptoms that they're experiencing as well. Well, I feel like you, you've brought out a good point, which is that I feel like our diet culture of the last 20 years has been unhealthy mm, Definitely, in, in the sense that we, it is, it is basically separating us from a healthy relationship with our food Yeah, and making it into almost like the enemy. Like mm-hmm. we're creating lists, laundry lists of what you're not allowed to eat, mm-hmm. right? Rather than, rather than us encouraging you to actually eat and mm-hmm. enjoy your food. Mm. Right. And we and we have all of these different things that we vilify, whether it's gluten or lectins or phytates or go down the line, whatever it may be. We have all these different things that we feel that we vilify. And for many people, it creates disordered eating mm. and that can fall on a spectrum and it could be minor. OK, it could be that you just kind of get a little bit uneasy with the idea of specific foods. Mm. And they can move all the way up to very, very severe things like through orthorexia mm. and moving into anorexia and bulimia. And I've actually seen people in my clinic, and I would imagine you probably have too, where they start with these great intentions, mm-hmm. go down a path of following whatever is the trendy diet is, and they all are restrictive. And the restrictive nature of that diet leads them into an eating disorder. 100%. And I just feel like. I don't know how you feel about this, but I just feel like people deserve better than that. Mm. I feel like people deserve better than that because for the last 20 years, we've been told that restriction is the way. Mm -hmm. And 
I don't think it actually works. Like, I don't think it actually works. I think the people, when they restrict, this is what I see in my clinic, and this is also what I see in the science. Mm -hmm. When people restrict, in some cases, they will temporarily feel better. Mm -hmm. And then a couple of weeks to months later, they're right back to where they started. And then they feel like they need to restrict it further. And they keep down that path until they end up in, a, in, in an incredibly unhealthy diet. Mm -hmm. Because it's so restricted that you're not getting all the nutrients that you need in your diet anymore. 100%. Yeah. When I used to work as a um, gastroenterology dietitian at the hospital, I would routinely see clients daily who had a list of six foods that they could eat or a list of, you know, 10 things that they could eat. I can't eat anything else. And then for some of them, it was just they taking these ridiculous tests with uh, some sort of natural health practitioner, you know, who didn't really understand what they were doing. And they gave them a whole list of foods that they reacted to. And I'd sit there and I'd look at these lists and I'm like, well, what happens when you eat corn? And they'd say to me, oh, nothing, but I can't eat it. Um, I'm intolerant to it. And I'll say, okay, well, what happens when you eat capsicum or you guys call it bell peppers? Oh, nothing, but I can't eat it. She told me not to eat it. And it's just kind of like, uh, where does that common sense kind of fall in? And how can you live your life eating eight different types of foods? And, and that's it. Because we yes. just, that fear is so real. Like if someone tells you, oh, you can't eat this, this is going to be bad for you, or it's going to be damaging for you, that fear just gets so ingrained in you. And then we get stuck in that, even how like mental health comes into gut health as well. And, you know, it causes more stress and more anxiety and then your symptoms get worse. And so you restrict further and you restrict further. And then sooner or later, it might be six months, a year later, you're left with this tiny, tiny little group of foods that you can eat. You stop socializing. You can't go out. You don't go to anyone's birthdays because you're so fearful that you can't eat anything anyway. And then it's like, where do you go from there? And you're less healthy than when you started, honestly. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I and I feel for these people so much because it's not their fault mm. because they're being fed. Th these are the diets that they're being told are the path. Yeah, yeah, right. And it just keeps being a reboot of of the same general concepts. Mm. You know, whether it was initially the Atkins diet and then moving into the Paleo diet and just going down the line. And it's like, do not get me wrong. There are things like take the Paleo diet. Mm. There are things about the Paleo diet that I celebrate. Mm that I think are wonderful. I think yeah. they're wonderful. I think they're fantastic. I was just talking, you and I were just talking 10 minutes ago about how we're not biologically adapted to our modern lifestyle and we need to kind of get back to something more authentic, mm. right? But, but at the end of the day, keep in mind too that many of these concepts were originally developed before we had the research studies to even look at the microbiome. Mm. You know, And if we don't look at the microbiome, then we're ignoring the most important part of this entire equation when it comes to your diet and your food processing and you know inflammation and all these other things that people are worried about. Mm. And so, and, and one thing I want to point out, um, if you don't mind, is I think it's important to talk about disordered eating and trauma mm -hmm. because these two things have a severe, deep impact on the gut microbiome. Mm -hmm. When I was at the University of North Carolina in my GI fellowship, they had one of the they had one of the top disordered eating clinics in the whole United States, mm -hmm. and we used to have collaborative conferences every two weeks just to discuss our patients because we had so many patients that we shared. Mm -hmm. So they did a microbiome study, and they found that disordered eating by itself causes dysbiosis. Mm, yeah. My most challenging patients are the patients who have disordered eating or who have a history of trauma, whether it's physical, social, uh, sexual, emotional, or spiritual. 
those are my most challenging patients. And the reason why is because you can treat them with a diet, mm. but you also have to treat the underlying issue, which is the unhealthy relationship with their food, which they live with and they battle against every single day, whether they acknowledge it or not publicly. Mm. People that have a history of those kinds of conditions, they don't just go away. It's like, it's like alcoholism. It's always with you and you can't just let go. Mm. Do you see things like this in your practice? To be completely honest, I have those feelings that a lot of those clients do suffer from those things. But when I was at the hospital, I'd get, you know, we, public health system in Australia, everybody gets free appointments. I'd have 20 minutes with a new client, maybe 30 if I was lucky. Yeah. So I'd barely scratch the right. surface in a lot of these things and it could take months or years to build up that rapport enough to go to go deep enough exactly but i guess right. a lot of the for the root of the problem for a lot of these people is that it's that feeling of control they've never had that control because of that trauma a lot of people have gone through such horrible things that eating is their control it's the one yeah. aspect of their life that they can control and so it it ends up in this dangerous restrictive path um that you mentioned yeah and i and i, and I just think like so i said this the first time they came on your show and I'm going to repeat it because this continues to be very true. And this is one of the core, core um, messages that comes out of my book, which is that the single greatest predictor of a healthy gut microbiome is the diversity of plants in your diet. So when you enter into a restrictive diet, look, if you tell me, hey, doc, I don't like kidney beans. Okay. Not a big deal. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Not a big deal. Yeah. But if you tell me, hey, doc, I'm getting rid of all beans and all grains or like add in any other category, when you do an entire category of foods, there's no way to compensate mm. because there's something special and unique about each one of these categories of foods that's out there. They all contribute to a healthy gut microbiome. And when you eliminate the entire category, you can't make that up by eating more kale. You just can't do it. They're different. You know, each food has its own unique properties mm -hmm. that it brings to the equation and that leads to a healthier gut microbiome. Every single food has its own way of contributing to a healthy gut microbiome. So the solution needs to be that we need to change our philosophy. Mm. We need to shift the pendulum the other way, stop with the restrictions mm -hmm. and start looking at what can we do to bring it back? What can we do to have the abundance and the diversity and enrich our diet mm. and enjoy all the flavors and textures and colors and bring it all back. And yes, some people will have digestive issues. Mm. And that's where people like you and I exist to help them and teach them so that we can at a minimum, at a minimum, you and I can educate them mm. so that they understand what's actually happening with their body. It's not inflammation. Mm. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And I'd love to just change track a little bit and ask you a little bit around time-restricted eating because it's, again, people would think about that word restriction, but it actually has nothing to do with um, food-wise restriction. But there has been a little bit of research, I think particularly in animal studies or in mice, I think, where it's showing that just giving that gut a little bit of extra rest can be beneficial um, for the gut microbiome. Is that correct? Yeah, it is. Yeah. So 100%, your, your gut likes to rest. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what it, what it really boils down to is that it's a conversation on circadian biology, which is our biorhythm. Mm -hmm. And all life, Leanne, literally all life on this planet has a biorhythm mm -hmm. that is synchronized to the rise and fall of the sun. And so whether it's an animal like a koala bear or us, or it's a tree or it's these invisible microbes that we can't see, they all have evolved 
to have a rhythm or, a, or, or to like basically be a little bit different depending on time of day. Mm. So give you a quick example with the gut. Mm-hmm. You could feed a person the exact same meal in the morning and in the evening, literally the exact same meal, no difference. And it will have different physiologic effects on their body. All right, that's the power of our circadian biology. You will actually spike a person's blood sugar later in the day with the exact same meal far more than you will earlier in the day. We are far more insulin sensitive earlier in the day. Mm -hmm. So this is where the idea of time-restricted eating comes in. And it's the gut microbiome that is really um, affecting this. And what it is, is your gut wants to rest. It wants Mm -hmm. to reset a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so time-restricted eating, two principles. Number one, it's time. Okay. And everyone gets that part. Mm -hmm. Everyone gets the, oh, 12, 14, 16 hours. To me, it starts with 12 hours. Mm -hmm. And then you can go up from there. But the second part that I think people are really missing, and I think is perhaps just as important, if not more, is the timing of it. Mm. So if you eat a meal at 11 o'clock at night, and then you fast until two o'clock the next day, that is not the same as having dinner early, have dinner at 5 or 6 p.m. So my approach is this. It's very simple. Have an early dinner. Mm -hmm. If you want dessert, have dessert. And then hard rule, no late night snacks, just water. Mm -hmm. Water fast after dinner. And then... By the time you wake up the next morning, unless you're waking up like super early, like some people do, like you, Leanne. <laughs> to podcast with experts. <laughs> <laughs> to do a podcast with a guy on the other side of the world. No matter what time you wake up the next day, you're probably already at 12 hours. Mm-hmm. And it's quite easy to just extend that fast just a little bit further. And then whenever you feel it's right, follow your intuition and go ahead and have some food. And so that's kind of the approach that I take. I don't set rigid um restrictions. But what I do is I just have an early dinner and I quite quickly get myself into a 12 to 16 hour fast Mm -hmm. um, to get those benefits. Mm. And I think it is important to note that um, you are still eating really great foods within that window that you are eating as well. And a lot of people, um, probably when we talk about time-restricted eating, their immediate thought is intermittent fasting because it's such a buzzword at the moment. But I think the thing that I don't so much love about intermittent fasting is that people think it's this I don't know, magical sort of tool that if they do it, they'll automatically lose weight. It's more so you do actually need to consider the foods that you're eating within your eating window as well. Quality matters. I think, you know, I, I really truly believe that this is all part of the entire package. Like you, You've already been emphasizing this, which is that don't ignore these other things. Mm. Don't ignore sleep. Don't ignore, don't ignore exercise, right? And we bring in time-restricted eating and it's sort of this novel idea And because it's novel, we get so excited about it and we want to just push it and push it and push it more and more and more. But guys, like if you exercise too much, you start to hurt yourself, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there is a threshold that exists for many different things where when you cross that threshold of too much, you actually start to hurt yourself. And I believe that that's true with this too. I would rather people do their 12 to 14 hours and then put some energy and effort into getting more sleep, getting yeah. some more exercise, yeah. as opposed to pushing this like 18 hours every single day 
thinking that this is going to restore your health. This is nothing compared to some of these other issues. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. And I think that, as you said, people just like to grab onto one thing and run with that rather than thinking broadly about everything. Because, um, And particularly for our listeners at home, I've got a lot of female listeners and a lot who who train very early in the morning. So um, time-restricted fasting is not beneficial if you're doing a heavy weight session in the morning. You need to eat something to fuel that session. So please be mindful if you're listening at home, not to just do this 16-hour fast because you think it's going to automatically improve your gut health. You have to look at it in perspective in terms of everything else that you're doing. And on some days of the week, you might just do a, a 10 hour fast or a 12 hour fast. And then other days where you're not training really early on, you might be able to push that to 12 or 14 hours. But as Dr. B said, more is not necessarily better. Yeah. I think you reach a point where you're just doing too much of it. Yeah. And I totally agree with you too, that it doesn't need to be every single day. Yeah. You know, that yeah. it can be adaptable to your lifestyle. Mm. But I love the concept of it because it does make people eat a little bit earlier, which then may make them go to bed a little bit earlier or actually have a better quality sleep. Because although I get this question a lot, people say, you know, just nutrition influence sleep and it doesn't necessarily influence sleep, but it can affect the quality of your sleep. If you're going to bed with a heavy tummy and you just had a massive uh, you know, a huge meal, then you're trying to go sleep, straight to sleep. You might wake up with a bit of indigestion or have to use the bathroom or something like that, which affects the quality of your sleep. So I think for some people, it could be really good in terms of helping them to have a smaller meal at night and then go to bed a little bit earlier and, and work on getting some extra quality sleep, yeah. which we know is really important for gut health, isn't it? Oh, totally. That's, I mean, that to me is like the lowest hanging fruit is just get a good night's mm. rest. Yeah. It's funny. We, we always come full circle. We always end up talking no matter what we, I bring up for you. We, it always comes back to diversity, good nutrition, sleep, and managing your stress. <laughs> well, I mean, isn't that, isn't that the secret formula for a healthy life, right? I mean, I feel like really we is. make it so complicated. Yeah. I mean, you know, we make it so complicated sometimes and it just, these simple rules can go so far if you actually do them. Yeah. Yeah. But everybody wants to do the, the new shiny thing, not the, not the, yeah. the age old principle that's been around for hundreds of years. <laughs> Now, my next question for you is really around, you brought up a few autoimmune conditions in the beginning, things like celiac and inflammatory bowel disease. Um, there's a lot of talk about going gluten-free for inflammation, and I'm not a fan of it. I know you're not a fan of it, but can you explain to our listeners at home some of the research and science behind that? Because, you know, a gluten-free brownie is very different to, you know, having a bowl of rolled oats for breakfast or having, you know, a slice of rice sourdough um, with some um you know, avocado or something like that. They're very, very different. Gluten-free is not a one-size-fits-all. It's totally not a one-size-fits-all. And I don't think that categorically eliminating gluten is necessarily a great idea for every single person. Mm. So I think like many things, you know, when we, when we make big sweeping rules, mm. we tend to miss the details that require more conversation. You know, mm. to say, you know, to say gluten is bad is like, to me, conceptually similar to saying fat is bad or saying that carbs are bad. And it's like, well, mm. hold up. There's parts of those stories that are really important. Mm. So, all right. So let's have a talk for a moment about gluten, um, which is that gluten is a protein mm -hmm. found in wheat, barley, and rye. Mm -hmm. And we have obviously uh, had concerns that were raised by some very popular books and some mm -hmm. trends in the health space that have occurred in the last 10 years. Mm. And turned gluten-free, honestly, into a trendy thing where in the United States, and I would imagine it's probably true in Australia too, about one in three people is actively trying to restrict their gluten because they've just heard gluten's bad, so I should mm. try to restrict it. Wow. And the question is, is that in their best health interest? So let me tell you that in the book, I break this down in great detail and I create specific categories so that people can basically read through in the book and understand where they fit, mm -hmm. okay, specifically where they fit. Mm -hmm. But let me start with some basics. 
if you have celiac disease, mm -hmm. celiac disease is a genetically motivated condition, meaning you have to have the gene to get it. Mm -hmm. And people that have celiac disease, when they consume foods that contain gluten, it activates their immune system and the immune system attacks their intestine. Even if they feel perfectly fine, which sometimes they do, mm. even if they feel perfectly fine, it's a dangerous situation because they could give themselves cancer. Mm -hmm. So a person who has celiac disease, I want them to eliminate gluten and there, there is no flexibility there. It's 100% you need to be gluten free. Mm -hmm. And I will tell them that. Mm -hmm. But I think where my concern lies is the person who, above all, is casually gluten-free because they heard gluten is bad. Mm. And part of the reason why I'm concerned about that is that when we study people going gluten-free and we look at their risk of developing heart disease, what we find is that the people going gluten-free substantially increase their risk of having a heart attack. Wow. And that is the number one cause of death in the United States. And I would assume it probably is in Australia as well. The mm. number one cause of death is cardiovascular disease. Mm -hmm. We don't need to put ourselves at higher risk for having the number one cause of death. Mm. And the issue, the reason why this is a problem is that people are throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Mm -hmm. So what that means is they're saying, I want to get rid of gluten. Mm -hmm. So they get rid of all gluten-containing products. And in the process, they get rid of the number one source of whole grains in our diet. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not going to sit here. I want people to understand. Like, I'm not sitting here and telling you that your diet should be 60% gluten. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm not saying to maximize gluten. And I'm definitely not saying to get more processed foods in your diet. Mm -hmm. What I am saying is that we need whole grains. Mm. And if the number one source of whole grains in your diet are gluten-containing foods, then, then you know, we need to recognize that if you go gluten-free, you need to, at a minimum, replace those whole grains with other whole grains. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's, to me, there are ways to still go gluten-free and be healthy, mm -hmm. but the way that you do it is most likely a person who has talked to someone like you or someone who's talked to a person like me and gotten the guidance, they've received the guidance to say, look, if you want to go gluten-free, be my guest. But if you're going to go gluten-free, I need you to get more sorghum, mm -hmm. more quinoa, mm -hmm. more gluten-free oats. I need these whole grains in there and you need to make a concerted effort to make sure that you're including them. Anything that I missed on gluten when it comes to... No, no. I think I think you covered it really well. And I think the biggest message for people at home is if you have celiac disease, you 100% need to be on a strict gluten-free diet. Unfortunately, there is no cheating here. And then probably the other really important thing is just that um, a lot of people think that you know gluten-free is automatically healthy when you look at how many processed foods contain gluten. But then we also think of how many of our healthier options contain gluten as well. So as you said, we can't just categorize it all. We can't just put them all in the same category. And a lot of people who go gluten-free will then, um, you know, cut out all the cakes, the biscuits, the brownies, and then over time end up having gluten-free biscuits, gluten-free cakes, gluten-free brownies. And at the end of the day, you know, the diet is still, you know, exactly the same, but everything's just missing the whole grains and the fiber, which at the end of the day 
is worse off than where they actually started because we know that we can't cut out, you know, things like biscuits and cakes and that sort of thing permanently long term. We don't have to. Those things can still be included in a healthful diet um, in small amounts. But I think that where the problem lies is that initially a lot of people going gluten-free will cut them all out, feel so much better. And then over time, those things creep back in just in a gluten-free format, like a gluten-free cake or a gluten-free brownie. And it's still, it's still a cake. It's still a brownie at the end of the day. There's really yeah. no difference. The problem is in gluten. The problem was the level of processed foods and the lack of fiber in most people's diet. That is such a great point. And the, and you know, if you went back 10 years ago before the gluten-free diet became trendy, those gluten-free foods were very hard to come by. Yes. And yes. then this became a trend and now they're everywhere. And There's so people, whole aisles of them. <laughs> yeah. So people are just replacing gluten for, you know, gluten containing foods, which were processed foods with other processed foods. And I honestly don't know that it's a step up. It might be a step down in many cases. Mm. So, and you know, there's one other thing I want to share real quick with your audience, because I think it's important in the gluten conversation, which is we hear about this idea of gluten sensitivity. Yes. All right. So this is the person who eats a gluten containing food and they say, oh, I got some like gas bloating or some digestive issue, that mm. discomfort. Mm. and Let's assume, because it's important, you need to make sure this person does not have celiac disease. Yes. Okay. So let's assume that they do not have celiac disease and we have confirmed that with our testing. Mm -hmm. Is it the gluten that actually causes their digestive distress? Mm -hmm. And research would say that it's not even the gluten that's the problem. Mm. They did this study that I found to be, I love this study because I just think it's so fun because we call it gluten sensitivity. And then when you read this study, you realize we have misnamed the condition. Mm. Okay. Mm. Because what they did is they gave people, imagine for three weeks, I have you in the study mm -hmm. and each week I'm giving you a new breakfast bar to eat. Mm -hmm. All right. And there's three different breakfast bars, but you don't know which one you got. Mm -hmm. And each day you write down for me how you feel and how much distress you have in your gut. Mm. So the three bar bars that they gave people, one was a gluten containing bar, mm -hmm. one was a placebo, mm -hmm. and one contained fructans. Yes, yes. Fructans are the FODMAPs yeah, and carbohydrates. that you will find in wheat. Yeah, yeah, not protein. And the fructans, by the way, are prebiotic. Yes. So this is part of what makes actually wheat quite redeeming is that when you look at the studies, and I detail them in my book, mm. if you look at the studies, the wheat is actually good for the microbiome. Mm -hmm. It actually makes it stronger. Mm -hmm. So in this study with the three breakfast bars, here's what they found. When people ate the gluten-containing bar, they actually had less symptoms than they did with the placebo. <laughs> less, the placebo was causing more symptoms than the gluten. <laughs> and then when they ate the fructan-containing bar, it triggered them. Yeah. And yep. it was like, ding, 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 ding. Yep. This is where the problem is. I've seen that a lot in my clients. Yep. So it's not that, again, people lump gluten-free into everything. It's more of an intolerance to fructans, which is where I think a lot of people um, towards a lower FODMAP diet could could be useful for some, not the majority. Um, but I think, again, it's really based on the amounts and the thresholds that people can tolerate, not just saying, I can't ever eat this again. Because as you mentioned, a lot of FODMAP-containing foods are natural prebiotics, which are so beneficial for our gut health. That's right. And so if you, if you eliminate the food, then you actually miss out on the prebiotic. And so as a result, your gut microbiome suffers. Yeah. So I think that there was huge sweeping statements on social media. And what it comes down to is a lot of people just have no idea what they're talking about, despite calling themselves an expert in this area or, a, you know, a natural health therapist or something like that. A lot of people say, oh, gluten's inflammatory. And they really have no idea um, really what they're talking about, which is 
that. So I do hope people tune into our podcast and, and learn a lot from it. <laughs> yeah. And now leading on from the inflammation around gluten, um, let's talk about quickly leaky gut because I feel like that's another, um, you know, diagnosis that people throw around social media. I get so many messages from people saying, oh, I've got leaky gut. Um, my, you know, my naturopath told me this, what can I do about it? And people don't understand that you know, leaky gut up until a few years ago when I was working in the hospital, these were conditions that, you know, people critical in ICU would, you know, their guts would become leaky and more permeable because they were so, so unwell or somebody who had, um, you know, newly diagnosed celiac disease. It's not something that we just throw around because you get a little bit of gas, you get a little bit of bloating. Um, I think people are just whacking this leaky gut diagnosis on everybody who's got some sort of gut symptom. Mm -hmm. So can you break down leaky gut for us a little bit um, and sort of um, help people out there understand what the difference is between symptoms and what is truly leaky gut from a medical, um, I guess, diagnosis and perspective. Sure. So, um, you know, leaky gut is this, it's kind of like the genie came out of the bottle and, you know, once it got out, you can't put them back in, right? Or like the cat (laughs) got out of the bag, right? So because this idea got out there of leaky gut and people started running with it. And, you know, it's similar to, you would probably, I would imagine, Liam, feel this way about SIBO too, small intestine bacterial overgrowth. Yeah. I'm going to go there with you in a second. Okay. (laughs) That's one of my next questions. Which is that with these conditions and in the US, Lyme disease is another one Mm. where it's just like all of a sudden everyone, you know, Every single person has this specific condition, and in many cases, they're not even getting the appropriate testing. And then the internet gets flooded Mm. with information that I don't even know where it starts, but all I can say is I'm pretty sure it's an echo chamber Mm. where one person says it, and then other people are being educated off of this person who starts off with misinformation. Which is scary. And it just keeps carrying forward. Yeah. So you have to be really careful that you vet your sources on the internet, Mm -hmm. um, which is one of the important messages, I think to take away from this podcast. But what is leaky gut? Well, let me let me tell you, it's not that I don't uh, it's not that I think it's a farce and non-existent. I mm-hmm. do believe that it exists. Mm-hmm. But really what we're talking about, the correct term would be dysbiosis. Mm-hmm. And di- dysbiosis speaks to a, you know, damage or a loss of balance within the gut. Mm-hmm. If you would zoom in on the gut for a moment, here's what you would see. First, you would look at the microbes and you would see less good guys and you would see more bad guys. And you would see a loss of diversity where there's less species of microbes. Okay. And th- this is a sign of that the gut microbiome is not as healthy mm-hmm. as it normally is. When you start losing species, that's a bad sign. It means you're eroding the health of the system. Mm. When this occurs, it affects the lining of the colon, the lining of the intestine. Mm-hmm. See, the lining is this layer called the epithelial layer, and it's got these cells. Mm-hmm. And the cells are meant to be like a wall. And they keep what's inside the tube of the colon inside the tube of the colon. Mm -hmm. But these cells, they're connected to each other through like something that's like a spot well. It's called a tight junction. And when you damage the microbes, you damage these tight junctions. They pop open and you increase intestinal permeability. And if you wanted to have another way to say increase intestinal permeability, you would say you got a leaky gut. Yeah, there's a hole in it. (laughs) Right? There's a hole in it. And that's where this expression has come from. But it's taken on a life of its own. Yeah. And there are people that will diagnose you without doing any testing. Mm-hmm. Um, there are people who, you know, just everyone that they see literally has leaky gut. Mm. And so I, I don't think that every single person that has digestive issues or digestive symptoms necessarily has leaky gut. I also think that there's different gradations, right? Mm. Mm. In, in the sense that what you described in the beginning, 
a person who has ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, person with celiac disease, a person who's in the intensive care unit mm. and like hasn't actually had legitimate nutrition in you know days through their intestines. That's a that's a radically different scenario in terms of the inflammation and what's happening to the lining of their intestine mm. compared to the person who has mild digestive symptoms on occasion when they eat very specific foods. Right? I mean that's more of a food sensitivity yeah. than it is true dysbiosis. Now, we don't have great tests to tell us who actually has dysbiosis. I wish that we did. Yeah. I wish that we did. The way that I personally piece it together is when I see a person who has not only, you know, I'm in the GI doctor, so they come in to me with their digestive issue, but then I see that they have these other conditions that have been associated with dysbiosis. So I will frequently find that they also have migraine headaches, anxiety, depression, sometimes endometriosis or polycystic ovary syndrome. Or, and you go down the line and you start seeing that they have all these multiple conditions associated with dysbiosis. And you go, okay, it's clear to me what's going on here. This person has dysbiosis. Mm. All right. But I think the, to get back to your, your original question, the bottom line is this. Not every single person that has digestive sensitivities has leaky gut. Mm. And there are gradations of severity. It can be very severe. It can be quite mild. Um, but be careful what you read on the internet. Mm -hmm. And I don't even like using the term leaky gut because there is just so much BS out there online that I like how you kind of term it dysbiosis instead, or even I just say, okay, well, what are your cluster of gut symptoms? And let's work on those symptoms yep. because I like to treat the symptoms and not the, you know, I don't want to say like fake condition, but the condition that people believe that they have because they're so bogged down in that condition that they can't see anything else and it gives them so much stress and anxiety versus if we just say, all right, well, you're feeling a little bit bloated and your bowels aren't working properly. It just sounds like constipation to me. Let's give you a bit more fiber. Let's get you active. Let's give you a bit more water. And I think you bring up a great point, Leanne. And, and the reason why is this, this is, this is the key. And I don't think the people at home understand this, but I think you understand this because this is what you've done for a living. Mm. We have really high quality research studies when it comes to specific diagnoses. Yes. Yes. But you have to be able to measure it. Yes. <laughs> you can't you can't study something that you can't measure. Yeah. Right? We do not have high quality studies when it comes to this idea of leaky gut. Mm. Because I told you, I can't I don't even have a test to diagnose it. Yeah. So how can they possibly do high quality studies on this idea of leaky gut if you don't even have a way to measure it to know whether it's existing? to know whether it's getting worse, to know whether it's getting better. How are you supposed to study that? So what, and what we see in the community is you see people getting diagnosed with this condition. Mm. We don't have high quality studies for it. And then they double down on the lack of information or the lack of research by then applying ideas or treatments that are also not grounded in, in study or research at all. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think that you're right. Here's, here's, here's the bottom line. You can go down the path that we could gut. There, there is very little research to back up that path. Mm. And you will be, you will be fed treatments that also have very, very little research to show that they do anything, that there's yeah. no efficacy. Yeah. Or alternatively, you can actually give someone a real diagnosis and go down a path that actually is backed up by legitimate research and hundreds or thousands of studies. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people, like when they say to me, I've got leaky gut, oh, this is what I told my natural health 
practitioner or whatnot, it just sounds in my head, I'm like, it just sounds like some sensitivity or it just sounds like some mild IBS. But even the criteria, like people forget that irritable bowel syndrome has a criteria as well. There's the wrong criteria to actually diagnose IBS as well. And we've talked about this on a previous podcast, so we won't go into it now. But people can't just assume that because you get a little bit of bloating in your bowels or a bit funny sometimes that you've got some condition. But I think people... I think from what they say to me, they they feel better putting a name on it or putting a label on it. That's you true. Know, they'd rather that they know that they have, you know, something like leaky gut versus I just get a little bit sensitive to some food sometimes. And for a lot of people, it's just when they eat takeout or they eat too much processed foods. Mm. And I'm like, you know, that's normal, right? That's not a condition. There's nothing wrong with you. Like if anybody goes out and has beer and pizza, they're going to feel a little <laughs> bit bloated. That, that, like that's normal. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I'm with you 100%. And I, I hear you on that. I actually, believe it or not, many times, so- I, um, pre COVID-19 yeah. <laughs> spent a little more than 50% of my time doing endoscopy. Yeah. Okay. And in the United States, we do a, a lot of this in terms of the way that we care for our patients. Mm-hmm. And it's quite common for me to come out of an endoscopy, particularly with a younger patient mm-hmm. and say to them, look, everything looks good. Yeah. Everything looks good. Yeah. And then they get a little bit upset Yeah, because they actually want me to tell them that they have a medical issue. Yeah, And then I have to actually elaborate and explain to them. I've actually kind of gotten to the point where I just kind of jump into this conversation before they get upset. I just kind of explain the whole thing, <laughs> which is to say that you, you don't want me to diagnose you with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis or celiac disease. You don't want these no. things that are kind of nasty. Trust me, what you would rather is that I find nothing like I did on you today. Mm. And don't worry, I'm going to find a diagnosis. I will tell you what you have. But you just, we just have to work through the process to get there. And it may take me a little more time than if I found like ulcerative colitis the first time I meet you, you know? Couldn't agree more. Now, I'm going to completely switch, um, I guess, paths now and ask you a little bit more about low residue diets or low fiber diets. So for somebody who may at home have something like um, inflammatory bowel disease and they've got a bit of stricturing in their bowel, how would you, like we know that high fiber diets and that diversity is so important for gut health, but for people who have to watch their fiber intake due to a medical condition, um, maybe they're in like a big flare of diverticulitis or something, what would your suggestions around that be? Or how can they still, um, you know, get in some food and nutrients to support their gut health when um, fiber is something that they really can't have a lot of? So let's, let's um, you know, the, you could create a lot of clinical scenarios around the possibility of a low residue or a low fiber diet. Mm. Let's start with the person who's got stricturing Crohn's disease. Okay. Yeah. And for the people who are listening at home, Crohn's disease, you may already know this, but it's an autoimmune condition and it can affect literally any part of the intestine all the way from the lips, all the way down to the backside, the end of the bottom. And many of these patients will have the stricturing form where actually their intestine develops scar tissue from the inflammation and it actually gets tight. And so it's like a bottleneck, you know, and so, or like an hourglass where it has to funnel through this one space. And if you have fiber, fiber is not digested or broken down. And so it can actually pile up in that location and cause pain or potentially worse for a person like that. Mm. So you're saying to me, Dr. B, what do we do about fiber? You're telling me the fiber is so important. What would you recommend for this person? And the, the answer to the question, Leanne, is that we have to start by understanding the two different types of fiber. Mm. Because we have these two broad categories, mm-hmm. soluble and insoluble fiber. Insoluble fiber is the roughage. It's the grit. No matter what you do, it is, it is going to continue to exist in that form. Yeah. 
And when you eat insoluble fiber, the path of insoluble fiber is always the same. It goes in your mouth. It passes through 20 feet of intestine. Comes out the and other it comes end. out your body. Yeah. <laughs> comes out the other all end. Right? That's insoluble fiber. And that's, and, but, but we've been taught that all fiber is that. And that's not true. Soluble fiber has a very different story. Soluble fiber is the type that if you put it into a beverage, for example, I put soluble fiber into my coffee in the morning. I put psyllium husk in my water. <laughs> there you go. And if you stir it up, it will dissolve, mm-hmm. right? The soluble fiber will completely dissolve. So soluble fiber is different and soluble fiber is prebiotic fiber. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just go in the mouth and then pass out the rear. When you hear people say that, they I clearly don't have a complete understanding of fiber. Mm-hmm. Soluble fiber goes to the colon. And when it gets to the colon, it is consumed by the microbes in the colon and they turn it into short chain fatty acids. Mm-hmm. Soluble fiber is to me, one of the keys to healing and reversing dysbiosis. Mm-hmm. And I lay out in the book in, in chapter three in great detail why that is the case. So coming back to the patient with Crohn's disease who has a stricture, mm-hmm. we don't want this person to have insoluble fiber. Mm-hmm. We don't want them to have the roughage. But what is okay for this person is soluble fiber. Soluble fiber is completely fine and healthy. Mm-hmm. And so what we need to do is for this particular person, we may be avoiding the, you know, essentially high, high insoluble fiber foods, the high grit or roughage foods. Mm-hmm. We may be making sure to process and break down our fiber as much as possible. It's different when you, you know, chop it up into a smoothie compared to eating it raw as a salad. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing is we should keep open the possibility of a soluble fiber supplement. Mm -hmm. And the reason why is because the soluble fiber will not plug up or bog up inside of the stricture. It will pass through the stricture and then it will go to the colon and it will help to heal the colon and reduce inflammation. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that soluble fiber will by itself reverse active Crohn's disease. Mm -hmm. What I am saying is that. When I treat a patient with Crohn's disease, my goal is to, and I don't know how you feel about this considering the fires that we had in Australia this year, but I like to use the analogy of a forest fire. Mm-hmm. If I have a person with active inflammatory bowel disease, don't try rebuilding the forest while the fire is still burning. Mm-hmm. Put the fire out. You got to put the fire out and you got to put it out completely. So in my, in my clinic, when I have a patient with Crohn's disease, my number one step is to get their Crohn's disease under control. Yeah. But once I have their Crohn's disease under control, then I'm going to move towards these dietary mechanisms to try to improve the health of their gut microbiome mm-hmm. that will include soluble fiber. And depending on what's going on with the structuring disease, some, some variety of, of insoluble fiber, it kind of just depends. Amazing. I'm doing all the right things with my clients then. Yeah. <laughs> and for our listeners at home, um, when Dr. B mentioned something like a um, soluble fiber supplement, you're meaning something like psyllium husk, squar gum, um, oh, I can never pronounce it. Acacia, acacia? powder. Yeah, yeah. Acacia powder from Senegal. <laughs> yeah. um, in the United States, we have wheat dextrin. Um, mm. yeah. uh, technically, beta-glucan and glucomannan are also both soluble fiber. But yeah. if, you, if you ever buy them as a powder, what you're going to find is they're, they're extremely viscous. Mm-hmm. So like I made the mistake, I bought this big package of glucomannan mm-hmm. and uh, I like to put my soluble fiber in my coffee. Mm-hmm. 
So I put this glucomannan into my coffee. And then like five minutes later, my coffee was like gelatin. Luggy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure like I've been there too. So been there too. We yeah. got to like, test all of them during during our uni studies as well, which is really fun. <laughs> yeah. And some yeah. of them are very viscous. And they're all different too. I, you know, I want people to know that too, that every single type of fiber is different. So fiber is not just grams. Mm-hmm. Um, this is why variety becomes very important. This is why diversity of plants becomes important because you know, we use this term fiber, but fiber is actually an incredibly broad term. Mm. We don't even know how many types of fiber exist in nature. There may be millions, there may be billions of types of fiber. Mm-hmm. And each one has its own unique biochemical properties and will have different effects on the gut microbiome. Mm-hmm. Each type of fiber will feed specific families and microbes. So the more variety of fiber, meaning the more variety of plants, that will translate into the more variety of microbes that thrive. And just a few moments ago, I told you, a healthy, an unhealthy gut is when you lose diversity. Mm-hmm. A healthy gut is when you restore diversity. And the way that you restore diversity is with diversity within your own diet. Wonderful. So would you even recommend if somebody was regularly taking a soluble fiber supplement to have diversity even in the type of supplement that they're taking? Now, I want to be clear for our listeners at home, we're not talking about a probiotic supplement. We're talking about a soluble fiber supplement like the ones we mentioned, um, acacia, guar gum, psyllium. Would you recommend even diversity with that? So taking one for a couple of weeks or a few months and then changing up and then changing it up again. So you've still got that diversity going in weekly, monthly, that sort of thing. So I so I like this idea of diversity across the board, Leanne. Yeah. All right. This is why to me it's like the golden rule of nutrition. Mm-hmm. It's like rather than having a laundry list of the things you can't eat, why not just have this one rule? Focus on diversity. Mm-hmm. And yes, when it comes to soluble fiber supplements, I do believe in diversity. Personally, the way that I do it is to start with one, introduce one initially, and mm-hmm. then when I feel that it's right, I'll start to introduce other ones and I'll just kind of sprinkle them in here and there. That way you are continuing to get the variety from week to week, as opposed to going all in on one and then making the switch to a different one after a certain period of time. I don't necessarily do that. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, so that's, and that's the way I do it. And, you know, diversity to me is also important when it comes to fermented foods. I am mm-hmm. all about a different, you know, a wide diversity of fermented foods as well. Mm, love it. And just quickly for our listeners at home, um, if you are going to try something like a soluble fiber supplement, please start slowly and increase very slowly over time, or you're going to have some problems and you're probably going to send a bit of hate Dr. B in those way <laughs> from having a little bit more tummy problems than you probably started with. So just start slowly and increase slowly over time with plenty of um, water as well, fluid as well. Now, I think we definitely have to adjust probiotics with you quickly, Dr. B, um, before we wrap up this first podcast, um, because again, so many questions questions from um, people online and, and followers and that sort of thing around probiotics. So can you give us a little bit of a, I guess, a snapshot, the difference between what probiotics are and prebiotics? Because I think I feel there's still a lot of confusion. A lot of people put probiotics as a gold standard, but after chatting to you um, in our first couple of interviews, I've definitely even flipped my sort of belief around that now recognize how important natural prebiotics are yeah. in terms of um, helping to repair gut health. So probiotics, many of you are aware, are the actual living bacteria, the living microbes. Mm-hmm. And we will take them as a capsule. And we have been sold to this idea that like gut health starts with probiotics. When in fact, I would go in a different direction. And I would say number one is diet. Number two is lifestyle. Number three are prebiotics, P-R-E. Mm-hmm. And after that are probiotics. Mm-hmm. And that's actually the way that I address my patients when I practice medicine. 
Probiotics are the living microbes. Prebiotics are the food, the energy source for those microbes. Mm -hmm. They thrive off of the prebiotics. Now, you could take a probiotic and drop it in there. And the way that it works is this. Leanne, you have a completely unique microbiome. There is no one on the planet quite like you. Mm -hmm. And the same is true for the person at home right now listening to us. It's like a fingerprint. And when you take that probiotic, you drop it in there, and you're really crossing your fingers and hoping that when you get those bacteria mixing with your bacteria, that you're going to get some good biochemistry, that it's going to work out to your favor. Right, But if you don't feed those microbes, there's no point because the microbes will just go down there and then they'll pass through. Mm -hmm. Most people are not getting enough prebiotics in their diet. Very true. The vast majority of people are deficient in fiber. Mm -hmm. That's why I had to talk about it in my book so heavily because we're not getting enough of it. This is, I think, our biggest deficiency. Mm -hmm. A prebiotic supplement does not replace the need for fiber in your diet but it can boost it. It can augment it. And then what you're doing is you're taking your unique microbiome and I don't care who you are, whether it's you, Leanne, whether it's me, whether it's the person at home, if you take a prebiotic, it will feed the microbes. They will get stronger and then they will reward you with short chain fatty acids. Mm -hmm. So you get all of that from the prebiotic and it's dirt cheap because fiber supplements have been out for 30, 40 years. Mm -hmm. They can't really repackage them and charge them four times the amount that they currently do. Whereas probiotics are really, it's not to say that there's no value. It's not to say that they're worthless. It's just to say that it's more hype than actual science. Mm -hmm. There are some people that they help, but you know, is it worth the cost from month to month when you may get better results from just taking a fiber supplement? Or just eating natural prebiotics. Well, and, and eating natural prebiotics for me is really, it, it needs to start there. I mean, let's not ignore the importance of diet. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it should be diet first. It should be lifestyle second. And then it should, you can put diet and lifestyle 1A and 1B if you want to. Mm. That's your number one package. That's where you need to focus your energy. And then you may get a little bit of a boost from the prebiotic. And then lastly, the probiotic. Don't think that you're going to take a C minus gut and turn it into an A plus by taking any supplement. Mm. simply not the mm. way it works, you know? <laughs> yeah. All right. So I guess the take home for the people at home is to really don't just grab a random probiotic off the shelf because probiotics, P-R-O, is so important, the specific strain and the type and the condition that you're trying to treat. And as we mentioned, there are specific medical conditions where there is a little bit of research behind them that can show um, some great benefit. And um, one of those is um, ulcerative colitis, isn't it? There's some really good research that probiotics can help with that specific condition um, or um, traveler's diarrhea. Mm -hmm. as well is another one. But really for the majority of conditions people are taking probiotics for, a lot of people just say, oh, I take a probiotic because I want a better gut health or I want to be healthy. But really what you're saying is the gold standard here is to increase the diversity of your plants in your diet, work on your lifestyle, and also have enough natural prebiotics in your diet and not even give a second thought to probiotics. It's sort of like the last step that we may try, but just taking a, a random multi-strain probiotic off the shelf um, in a capsule form isn't really going to do too much would you say? Well, I'm mean, particularly if you're healthy. Yeah, for healthy people. You know, yeah, particularly if you're yeah. healthy, and and if you have a specific medical issue that you're trying to address, your point is the correct point, which is that if you have a specific issue that you're trying to address, you should take the specific probiotic that's been shown in a study yeah. to actually benefit that specific issue. 
And just, um, I want to also clarify for listeners at home, when you were talking about those natural prebiotics, you eat the prebiotic, they go and they break down into what we call these short chain fatty acids. And that is what, when we talk about like gut healing, a lot of people say, oh, you know, gluten-free will heal my gut probiotics, but it's really these natural prebiotics and the short chain fatty acids that can actually promote some of that gut healing and strengthen the line of your gut, isn't it? So really what we're talking about is these prebiotics are the sort of the miracle that everyone's looking for. And you can eat them in normal food. You don't have to take them in supplement form. Yeah. I could talk about these prebiotics right? 100%. Yeah. I could talk about these prebiotics and short chain fatty acids all day long. You know that about me. But just to go <laughs> back to our dysbiosis comment from before, yeah, I told you that dysbiosis is a loss of the good guys, an increase in the bad guys, mm-hmm. and also that you break down the tight junctions, which leads to increase intestinal permeability. Mm. If you look at what happens with short chain fatty acids, Short chain fatty acids enrich the good guys. They get stronger. They multiply. Mm-hmm. Same time, short chain fatty acids actually directly, directly reduce the the inflammatory microbes, meaning the bad guys like E. coli, Salmonella, Shigella. Mm-hmm. They are directly reduced by the short chain fatty acids. So you are restoring that proper balance. And then, if you look to the tight junctions to see what's happening to the tight junctions, we find that short chain fatty acids actually repair the tight junctions. Mm. So all of those steps that we're talking about with dysbiosis are actually being addressed directly by this product of the consumption of prebiotics that you get ideally mostly from your diet, secondary from a supplement. Mm -hmm. All of those things are being addressed. And again, keep in mind, 97% of Americans, and I think it's probably pretty close to the same in Australia, 97% of Americans are not even getting the minimum amount of fiber in the diet. Mm. So this is where there's this huge opportunity to get this yeah. fixed. Couldn't agree more. And it's the same statistic in Australia. I think it's 96 or 97% of Australians don't eat enough vegetables. And it's like you would rather you go spend $50 on a probiotics, but you don't want to eat more vegetables. Right. Like it just, it doesn't make sense. And so I'm so happy to have an expert like you on saying that your whole grains and your fruits and veggies are what will heal your gut over time. Because a lot of our natural prebiotics are found in a lot of our fruits and our veggies, some of our nuts, you know, things like cashews and pistachios, apples, um, What else are our natural prebiotics? Chickpeas as well. Like so many of our natural wholesome foods that people don't even want to give a second thought to, but they'll happily go and spend all their money at the supplement shop. Every single plant, every single plant has prebiotics. It's just to varying degrees and varying types. Yeah. So, and, um, and the other thing too, is that many of the ones that we vilify, like legumes Mm. or like whole grains, Mm-hmm. they actually are the ones that contain the most prebiotics and it's part of the reason why people struggle with them mm-hmm. if your gut is damaged. Mm-hmm. And so that's, and when you eliminate them entirely, you are eliminating what I would describe as the foundational foods for a healthy gut microbiome. Yeah. So you definitely need to add them back in. And we've talked about this extensively in our last podcast about why you shouldn't be following a low FODMAP diet long-term because it will do more damage to your gut long-term because FODMAPs are generally um, our natural prebiotics. So definitely add them in back home, but start very slowly, start in very small amounts and do it very gradually over time. And you may experience some increase in your symptoms um, initially, but over time you'll actually, you'll be able to reap the benefits as a lot of your symptoms will be reduced. And I'm the perfect case study of that. I um, I have done that myself over many years and I was someone who couldn't eat onion, garlic, apples, celery. I couldn't eat any of those sorts of foods a few years ago. And I went down the low FODMAP route when I was at uni and I did that all with a dietitian, with a gastroenterologist. But what we knew about the low FODMAP diet five years ago is very different to you know what we know about gut health and, and FODMAPs now. So it is so important to reintroduce all of these foods. And as Dr. B says, to be eating them in it 
the you know, a diversity of them at home. Um, even if it's just in really small amounts initially, you know, I started with, I'd put a teaspoon of chickpeas in a salad. Yeah. It sounds ridiculous, but that was all, and that would make me bloated. That would give me gas. And over time now, like I'm probably still not somebody who tolerates beans and lentils in huge amounts at the moment, but I could, I could easily have half a tin of chickpeas in a salad now and I'd be perfectly okay. Because your gut has adapted to it and the gut is like a yes. muscle. Yeah. The gut is like a muscle. And that means that the gut can be trained. It can be trained so it can mm. get stronger. Yes. And that's exactly what you did. You trained it. You yeah. start, it's like lifting weights. You started off with a low weight and then you worked your way up. Great analogy. <laughs> now, Dr. B, just before we wrap this one up, I'm so excited to bring you back for a part two of our podcast where you're going to listen to, you're going to answer all our listener questions. But just finally, before we wrap up, um, what would you say for our listeners at home would be the signs of an unhealthy gut? Say if they're thinking at home, oh, I have a couple of symptoms, but I'm not sure if this is worth going to see, um, you know, book a consult with Dr. B or, um, you know, go and see a dietitian. What would be some of the signs and symptoms that you would recommend that people go and touch base with a healthcare professional because they may have these signs of an unhealthy gut? Well, I, I kind of feel like at the end of the day, I, I trust um, my individual patients that when it reaches a threshold where it's affecting your quality of life, then I think it's worthwhile to initiate that conversation, mm. you know, mm -hmm. and it may not, it may not be something that's so serious and intense as, you know, potentially ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. It may be just a food sensitivity, frankly, but if it's affecting your quality of life, I feel like you deserve better. Mm. And I don't think you need to live with that. So. So I kind of feel like there's that's the initial threshold. But the point at which I start to say, whoa, like you need to be coming in and talking to one of us doctors, you know, or a dietitian, but you need to talk to a healthcare professional, period, is when there is unintentional weight loss, when there is escalating symptoms like escalating abdominal pain, escalating nausea and vomiting. Mm -hmm. If you have blood, if you see blood in your stool, if you see if you throw up blood, or if you have symptoms of anemia, like weakness, fatigue, lightheadedness, shortness of breath when you walk up a flight of stairs mm -hmm. and you notice that, you know, pale skin, stuff like that. If you notice any of those things, I think at that point, that's what we would call a red flag sign. Yeah. And, and that means that there could be something more serious going on and we need to investigate. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Thank you so much, Dr. B. Um, any parting words for our listeners at home? Do you want to tell us quickly about um, your new book, which isn't quite out yet, but by the time we put this podcast up, it should be, shouldn't it? It should be. Yep. And and the book yep. is called Fiber Fueled. <laughs> and I just want to warn you guys that I uh, somehow I did not realize this. Somehow I chose two words that are spelled completely different in the United States than they are in Australia. Right? <laughs> yeah. so, I always get pulled up on that. People are like, how are you a dietitian? You can't spell fiber. It's <laughs> more fiber. We just spell it differently to you. <laughs> yeah. I'm not trying to be disruptive or create any issues. I apologize <laughs> to you guys, but it's it's launching on May 12th in North America. And you can, and there are ways that you can get online. And if you have any trouble getting online, I mean, me and I can give you the, the link that people would use to order it if they want to in Australia. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, um, we'll put it in the show notes. So, but if you have any trouble, just reach out to me. But the book is called Fiber Fueled. And again, we spell it F-I-B-E-R. F-U-E-L-E-D, just one L, just one L in, in fuel in the United <laughs> States. So that's coming out May 12th. You can find me on Instagram as the Gut Health MD. And also I'm excited to share that I have a course that I'm going to be launching in, in most likely June of 2020. And that really is going to be sort of a compliment to the book. If you want, if you read the book and you love it, which I really hope that you do, and you want the next level, then come and enroll in the course and we can take a deeper dive together and get into all the details. Sounds fabulous. And I couldn't highly recommend Dr. B's course enough. He's getting some amazing feedback in his beta testing already. So um, thank you so much, Dr. B, for joining us again. And we can't wait to bring you back for a second podcast. We're going to answer all of our listener questions around gut health. Thank you, Leanne.